Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Centre Media and Politics Podcast. On this episode, we're joined by Sam Feist, CNN's Washington Bureau Chief, who spoke at the Shorenstein Centre about the role of the media in covering the 2016 election. Over the next hour, you'll hear discussion of how the media covers presidential candidates, including the unique candidacy of Donald Trump, and why this campaign's debates are attracting record-breaking audiences. So welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm Tom Patterson. I'm the interim director of the uh, Shorenstein Center, and uh, uh, but we're delighted uh, to have with us today uh, Sam Feist, who's the CNN Washington bureau chief, also senior vice president, uh, oversees, obviously, the daily operations of the bureau, but also the Washington-based programming situation room lead with Jake Tapper, Inside Politics. And uh, he's leading the production of CNN's uh, campaign uh, coverage. Uh, Sam, welcome. Well, thank you, Tom. Um, so I have visited here before and never with a, with a group this size, and I'm going to chalk it up as having nothing to do with me and everything to do with the fact that we're in maybe the most interesting presidential election I've ever seen. Um, so I, I've been at CNN for 25 years, and this is my seventh presidential election at CNN, believe it or not, and there's never been an election more interesting, I should say, than, uh, than this one. Um, one of the things that I do as the Washington Bureau Chief and uh, is, is I oversee our election coverage, so that means debates, and the debates, and perhaps we'll talk a little bit about that later, um, this cycle have been uh, nothing short of remarkable. Um, the first debate I produced was actually right here in Boston in 2003. Uh, it was the Rock the Vote. It was a Democratic debate in that cycle. It was over at uh, Faneuil Hall. Um, and next week, uh, on Thursday, you should watch, 9 o'clock Eastern. Uh, that'll be debate number 27 for me. It'll be a Republican presidential debate in uh, in Houston. And before I go to Houston, I will make my way tonight to Greenville, South Carolina, and then Columbia, South Carolina, where CNN has town hall. We'll be doing presidential town halls with three presidential candidates on Wednesday night and three Republicans on um on Thursday night. There's a lot of activity, as you can tell. There's a lot of activity for the for the media to cover. There are a lot of events that we're putting on. Um, something else that I do uh, as a part of our election coverage is uh, I'm the, there's a person at every television network who's the who sort of has their finger on the button uh, and projects the winners of presidential <coughs> election nights. And it's partially because our system here doesn't you don't actually certify election results. Um, on the night of elections, as they do in, in other countries. If you watch the UK elections, it's, sort of, it's over on election night. It's all certified and, and done. But here it doesn't work that way, so it's left to the television networks to actually help the public understand who the next president is. And largely we get it right every once in a while. As those of you who remember the 2000 election, um, we, don't, we don't get it right. I still have a little PTSD over, over that. I, I, wasn't, I didn't have my finger on the button then, but it was a, it was a remarkable night um, in journalism. Um, before we have a bit of a conversation, I thought I would um, just sort of share some thoughts, talk a little bit about the state of j journalism, um, and uh, speak on behalf of and in defense of the uh, the mainstream media, specifically from the perspective of CNN. Um, I think the most important thing I'd like to proffer is that at a, uh, a time when journalism and journalists uh, seem to be uh, retain their standing as, as not terribly popular in, uh, in our country. Um, I'd like to proffer the, 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 the notion that journalists, and particularly journalists working now, um, um, 
do their jobs with a remarkable level of integrity. And uh, you wouldn't know that by what you by the conversations you hear outside of journalism. Um, the conversations that I hear every day in um, in our newsrooms are um, remarkably similar. Over and over, you hear questions like this: Are we doing the right thing? Are we being fair? Are we representing both sides? Are we representing all sides? Um, are we 100% sure that we're right? Are we right? Um, and are our viewers and our readers going to learn something from this story that we're going to report? And that may sound Pollyannish, but that is the conversation we have constantly, every day. Not at the beginning of the day, not at some check-in meeting in the middle of the day, all day long, almost every hour of every day. And I think a lot of people outside of journalism don't realize that. Um, in 25 years at CNN, I have never once heard a, a colleague describe or even suggest who they're voting for. I have no idea who my colleagues vote for, and that's a good thing. Uh, many of my colleagues don't vote. I actually um, have a strange habit in that I vote um, because I think that America has a, um, a terrible voter participation problem, but I never vote for president. So I'm like one of the, I, I don't know how many people actually go into the voting booth on election day and actually cast a ballot, but I never actually cast a ballot for um, for, uh, for president, but that's, that's why, just that's why the turnout numbers are off. That's right? correct. Yes, it screws it all up. Nobody because it, it just it, nobody expects that. Um, but despite the public's perception and certainly the perception of many in the political class, um, I actually believe that it, that integrity and journalism, journalistic integrity, is at the center of everything we do, and that journalists today, particularly those covering politics, particularly those covering this crazy election, um, take their jobs incredibly seriously. Uh, I see our job as um, as simple. Uh, our job, my job, is to make sure that the voters have the information they need to make an informed decision. It's the most important civic choice that they're going to make. And it's our job to give voters information on a candidate's background, on a candidate's experiences, on what a candidate has said, fact check their past statements and, cur and current statements. Um, it's also, in the, in the realm of, of television news, um, Part of our job is to give the candidates an opportunity to connect with the voters, meaning we cover their events, we cover their speeches, we let the voters see them because they don't always have the luxury of your neighbors in New Hampshire of seeing candidates face to face. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, tough interviews with the candidates, all the candidates. Um, it's not our job to pick sides in elections. Um, we should never, ever tell you which party or candidate to vote for. That's up to to you or to the voters. Um, and if you ever watch CNN and you detect a party or a candidate preference from a CNN journalist, then it's a mistake. We're making a mistake. Um, journalistic integrity means that we have to be right rather than first. We take that seriously. We talk about it all the time. You hear it, but it's, it's something that's also a part of that hourly conversation. Um, nobody remembers if you're first, but they always remember if you're wrong. And if you are wrong, you have to correct it quickly and clearly. Um, doing the right thing means uncovering, uncovering wrongdoing. Um, investigations are, are part of our job, and, and we need to take that part of our civic responsibility uh, seriously. You may have heard about CNN's investigation uh, recently into the, veterans, the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, we did an investigation, launched an investigation that was uh, initially based on a tip on a whistleblower that the Department of Veterans Affairs had had 
waiting lists, secret waiting lists for our veterans who were not getting care. And of course, everybody that we approached about this in and around the Department of Veterans Affairs said that that wasn't true, that this was a lie, that that we were we were wrong. Um, we were told by dozens of officials that um, we were practicing bad journalism. I got calls from Senate offices um, telling us, threatening us actually, that we were wrong, that we were going down the wrong path, that this was terrible, we were going to be embarrassed about it. Um, and of course, you all know by now that we were not wrong. Um, we This months-long investigation um, proved that America's veterans were in fact on secret waiting lists, that the VA hospitals were deliberately misleading Congress, and that um, there were veterans dying while waiting for care on those lists. Um, that investigation led to a massive overhaul of how our veterans are treated and led to the resignation of the top leadership of the VA, including the Cabinet Secretary Eric Sinsecki. Um, I say this because there are a lot of people who think that journalism in America is broken, that we don't do our jobs. And I would argue that we're actually doing our jobs as well or better than we've ever done it through investigations such as I just described through our coverage of, of the um, presidential election. I don't think there's a lot about the candidates that you don't know. And the reason you know what you know is because of the political journalists who are working day in and day out covering them, looking at their backgrounds, looking at their records, asking for, demanding their health records, their financial records, whatever it is that we can get. And that's the reason that we know what we know about the candidates. You may not like the candidates or you may like them, but you, at least you know where they stand. You know what they've said in, in the past. You, we've fact-checked just about every statement they've ever made. Um, and um, you can agree with it or disagree with it, but at least you have the, the, uh, the information to, um, uh, to make, your, make up your mind. Um, I act, honestly believe that political journalism has never been more important, and this election is a, is a perfect example of why that is. Um, while we're never going to tell our viewers or our readers who to vote for, um, we do have to fulfill our responsibility to ask the tough questions um, day in and day out, whether it's in an interview or in one of the many debates that, uh, that, we're, um, uh, that we're producing. Um, so with that, I'd love to feel free to, to, to uh, poke holes at my thesis. I'm happy to talk about anything from <coughs> debates, producing debates, calling presidential elections, journalism ethics, uh, integrity. And, and it's interesting that tomorrow Jill Abramson is speaking right here, who is asking the question, do we have enough sources of good political journalism? Um, so clearly, I'm, I take the position that, yes, we do, including her two former newspapers. Um, I wish I could be here tomorrow and see what she says. So, so Sam, thank you. The um, uh, let me before we go to the students for questions. I want to uh, could you take us a little bit behind the scenes on the just on the Republican side, right? So you've got in the beginning roughly twenty candidates you're trying to cover, right? Mm -hmm. And you've got to make allocation decisions, right? And you obviously don't have twenty journalists to deploy. Uh, you can't. You can't. Probably not. I assume mm -hmm. you didn't have 20 just hanging around waiting for something. To we happen, hired right? them. We actually did. Right. So you, so, uh, so you pretty much did a body watch on all the candidates? Uh, we kind of did. Um, so CNN, about a year and a half ago, made a strategic decision that, and it was a bit of a gamble in that who knew what this election was going to be like. It was long before Donald Trump or even Bernie Sanders, and you just didn't know where it was going to be. But we made a decision to, that we wanted to, to – um, invest significant resources in our political coverage, and we 
have rebuilt our digital presence, CNNPolitics.com is, is a very different um, uh, uh, website business, frankly, than it was. And we hired 45 new people, new positions that didn't exist before for that enterprise. Um, and as a part of that, we were able to assign a person to every candidate. Um, we also, they didn't necessarily travel with them because mm -hmm. some of these candidates didn't travel much. We had right. Jim Gilmore, who he didn't travel very much. He was in Virginia most of the time. Um, some did. Um, so we did a, we did a, a sort of a two-tier approach. We had some, a person who was responsible for every candidate, mm -hmm. for covering them, for watching them, to, uh, for understanding what they were doing and for following through. But we also um, then assigned CNN reporters to the early states. So we have had a full-time CNN reporter mm -hmm. in New Hampshire since, um, oh, well, since about this time last year, oh. and the same in South Carolina, and the same in Iowa, so that every time a candidate, whether it was uh, Jeb Bush or uh, George Pataki, came to New Hampshire, we were able to, to see what they were doing, watch their events, keep tabs on them, um, track the reaction of the, of, the, of the voters in those early states, which, as we now know, as we know, always are incredibly important. Um, and so uh, we did. We actually tracked them all. Now, obviously, the, the, the Jeb Bushes or the Donald Trumps or the Hillary Clintons um, and then later Ted Cruz and Bernie Sanders, we ended up not just with um, reporters tracking them, but we had correspondent teams and cameras with them um, following them throughout all of their events yeah, yeah, uh, as they rose in the polls. Yeah. But that's important. It was important to be there, to be present, and to also be there to capture what you can't see by watching an event, and that's how did people on the other side of the camera react. So, but of course that takes resources mm -hmm. and takes money. Okay. So again, students first, uh, if you could identify yourself with your question. Uh, I'm Sam Salkin. I'm a public policy student. Hi, Sam. Hello. Um, I was wondering if you could comment on the phrase breaking news and the extent to which it's used, not just on, not just on CNN, but just in general, kind of in uh, like an oversaturated media landscape where it feels like moments like uh, Justice Scalia passing away certainly is breaking news. Uh, but there are other we times. We agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there are other times where maybe it feels like the weight of that phrase is not is placed on lesser events. And I'm wondering if there's a way to distinguish between like ultra super mega breaking news versus <laughs> the um, kind of some of the celebrity related news or things of that nature. Um, and, and again, I'm not saying that it's CNN, but I feel like I get breaking news emails from a bunch of media organizations that are. Do you open them? Yeah, I get, uh, yeah, but I open all. There them, we are. So, yeah, okay. Right, yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Okay. Next, we're good, right? Um, uh, well, first of all, there are two. There, when you when you use the term breaking news, um, for me that triggers two two different types of news. Um, in, in at least in the terms of CNN breaking news, there's news that CNN breaks that nobody else has at the moment we break it. So, for example. Last week, we were the first news organization to report that Rand Paul was getting out of the presidential race, which was the day after we were the first news organization to report that Martin O'Malley was getting out of the presidential race. Okay, so that was news that CNN broke. Sometimes news that CNN breaks may not rise to the level of national breaking news, it's, but it is some, it's, it's, it's sort of in journalism terms, it's a scoop, if you will. News that we broke, news that we reported before anybody else had it. Um, sometimes those are big stories. Sometimes those are not. The, the news organization who first reported uh, the death of Antonio Scalia was the San Antonio newspaper, I think, over the weekend, if I have it right. Um, so they broke that story. And yet, now we're going to the other definition of breaking news, it was a national breaking news story that, that even those who 
who think about such think about the definition of breaking news, such as yourself, um, considers uh, would consider really truly breaking news. It's very subjective. It's 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 a subjective issue. It's a, whether we put breaking news on our banners or whether a website puts breaking news on their um, uh, the top of their story or in their tweets. It's subjective. There's no uh, there's no right or wrong definition. Uh, clearly, the 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 idea is that something new has happened that is that warrants your attention. Now, whether or not what is new that has happened is worthy of calling it breaking news on CNN or NBC or on BuzzFeed or whatever news source you're looking at, there's no right or wrong answer. And um, some of those I can defend and some of those I can't defend. Um, um, but it's, 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 it's a topic that we hear about all the time from our readers and our viewers. So, please. Yeah, this is um, oh, I'm John Gibbs. Hi, John. I'm an MPA student at Harvard Kennedy School. Um, this is more, I guess, towards the primetime news segment. But if you look at the ratings on a daily basis, it seems that if you look at like one through six, it's usually always Fox News. Then seven, eight, nine are at MSNBC, CNN. Sometimes the multiple is like four to one or five to one in terms of viewership that Fox is getting versus other networks. Why in the world is that the case? Is there something about perception that people have of? Fox versus CNN that causes so many people to gravitate towards why they use Fox for their primetime news? So um, I think that those numbers are changing, and I think that it actually has been the case, and I think undoubtedly it's um, uh, Fox has, has had the highest ratings, there's no question. Um, I think if you also look in some of the the demographic breakdowns, the sort of demographics that are the younger demographics, I think you'll find that, that um, other places are climbing uh, on on Fox. Um, Fox has an older audience, um, significantly older than, for example, the CNN or MSNBC audience. Um, clearly, they have a base of viewers who are watching. I'm not sure that it's all news programming. It's some of its opinion programming. They have um, they have something that we don't have, which is is I kind of like to think of it as more of an opinion page in terms of their their anchors or their hosts. They're more hosts. Sean Hannity is a very successful program host, but he's not an anchor man in the true sense of the word compared to a Fox person's uh, personality such as Brett Baer or Wolf Blitzer or Anderson Cooper. So it's, I think it's a different type of programming. I don't think it's actually this, I, I don't think it's an apples to apples comparison. Um, if you're comparing, you know, an opinion program versus a newscast, I think you'll end up um, with different levels of viewership at different times. But I think also in a, if there's a, a crisis or if, so, if a Supreme Court justice dies, I think you'll find that the newscast does better than the opinion programming. So it's, um, uh, it's, 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 it, it, I don't, I just don't think it's, you can compare what Fox News does to um, what CNN does in prime time. And it, it's just a different, it's just, a, it's frankly, a, I think a different, um, a, just a different kind of program. Please. So I don't see our mission as to feed or move the public away from the divide. I actually, I, our mission is just, is, is actually much simpler than that. Our mission is to cover the campaign, is to report facts, is to report information about the candidates, is to report on their background, is to ask them tough questions, 
is to report their answers to, in, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes take their events live on a cable news channel um, so that the public can be introduced to them so the public can make up their mind. I don't see our mission as as any more or less than that when it comes to covering a, a presidential campaign or any political campaign. It's not to push the country apart or to bring the country together. That's up to the country and to the voters. I, I see our job is to report facts, cover facts, um, report on what the candidates say, make sure that the voters hear what the candidates say, and frequently fact check what the candidates say um, uh, to make sure that, they're, that, that what they say m meshes up with what, either what they've said before or the truth or, or, um, or wherever, the, wherever the facts take us. Um, so it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a simpler role than that, at least in my view. So we can open the, um, we'll open up the conversation now, but we'll, yeah, please. Can I, can I do something? Yeah. Um, my name is Dana Rye. I, to that point, is there a limit to where that responsibility goes? For example, some would at least make the argument that some of the statements that Trump is making are minimum very controversial, if not dangerous, and that he's, his popularity has been fed by the role that he has with the media and using the media to perpetuate these. Um, how do you view that versus um, the fact that just reporting, it's certainly news that the leading candidate who's leading all the polls is saying, proposing things that people have never proposed before and saying he's never said. So our job is to make sure that you know what he's saying, that you know perhaps that no one has ever said it before, that you understand what he said, what the context is, what the criticism of his comments are from either other candidates or um, uh, in some cases experts, and what the other candidates are saying about it. And it's, I, I believe that, that, that our job is to put as much information out there as, as we possibly can and let the voters decide what they want to do with it. It's, that is, it's, a, it's, it's not a complicated mission. Um, whether it's Donald Trump or Ted Cruz or Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders, uh, that's our job. And that's sort of the way our system works. And I think that is the role of the press in our democracy. We. We put as much information out there. We are not, our, our Constitution gives us the ability and the right to do that in an in a, in a, in a, in a unhindered way. Um, we need to tell the truth. We need to be accurate. Um, we need to check ourselves. But it's, that's our job. And I think that with, in the case of Donald Trump or the other candidates, I think the amount of information out there about their positions, their perspectives, the the support for their positions, opposition to their positions, um, analysis of their positions is, uh, I don't think we've ever had more information out there about candidates and their positions. I think it's a, a remarkable amount of information. Um, some might say too much information, um, but it's out there. And those of us who cover politics full time um, are, are putting it out as much as we can about not just Donald Trump, all of, all of the candidates. Um, that's our job. What the voters do with it, clearly Donald Trump has, is striking a chord with some Americans. Um, I, I don't think that they're necessarily ill-informed. Um, they may agree with him. We have to at least accept the possibility that the positions he's taking are um, positions that quite a number of Americans agree with. Nevertheless, our job doesn't change. Put the information out there, cover Trump, cover all the other candidates, and analyze his positions, analyze their perspectives, ask tough questions, ask how they're going to do what they say they're going to do, and let the chips fall where they may, and that's up to the voters. Please. Uh, my name is Edna Kisman. You mentioned that this is a remarkable election. Yeah. What 
exactly <laughs> makes it remarkable. Which one? Um, is it the number of people? Is it the, the types of outliers? It's the first question. The second one yes. is, is, uh, is uh, our elections good financially for the so I can't speak for the media overall. I can, sp I, can, I, I can speak for CNN in that we have never invested more resources, financial resources, people resources in covering an election as we have in this one. It's a massive undertaking. Um, our viewership is up. We've also never had more people watching our debates. So at the end of the day, hopefully we'll be able to pay for the coverage that we're, that we're doing. Um, it's a, um, but it, this is one of the things that makes it a remarkable year. So the previous highest, actually brought this because I'm, I'm, the previous highest rating for a Republican presidential debate was in 2011, and it was an ABC debate that I believe had 7.6 million viewers. Highest rating in the history of presidential debates. Primary. The highest rating for a presidential debate now, the record was broken in 2016, 23,900,000 viewers. That was a Fox debate in August. The second highest rating in the history of presidential debates was a CNN debate in September, 23.1 million viewers. The next highest rated debate in the history of presidential debates was also a CNN debate. This one was in December, 18.1 million viewers. And just before anyone thinks that this is all because of Donald Trump, the previous highest rating for a Democratic debate in history was somewhere south of 10 million viewers, I believe, or around 10 million viewers. And in October of 2015, CNN produced a Democratic debate with 15.5 million viewers, and I assure you Donald Trump was nowhere near that stage. It is a remarkable year, and it's not only on the Republican side. Uh, that Democratic debate, when we saw how many people were watching that debate, there's something happening in this country that has caused an interest among Americans in this election. Um, I can't, I'm not going to pretend to know exactly what it is, but it's not restricted to the Republican side, although what's happening on the Republican side is, is, is even more significant and just in terms of audience interest. Every, every event that we do, we'll do two this week on the Republican side. We did town meeting last week in, in New Hampshire on the Democratic side. We have three debates coming up in the next three weeks, two Republican, one Democrat. Um, the audience interest in those events uh, will be higher than anything we had ever done in any previous election cycle, um, cable or network. So there's something happening with our politics, there's something happening out, out in the public, in, 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 there's a, a fascination with this campaign, an interest in the candidates, and that's a good thing, by the way, that's a great thing. Uh, I think some of us have lamented in recent cycles the lack of interest in the political process, in, the pri in primaries. Certainly, uh, I referenced it at the beginning, I think America has a problem with uh, low voter participation rate, and maybe this year it'll be different. Maybe we will have more Americans vote, and that's that's a good thing. But there's there's something out there, and as I said, it's it's it, perhaps it's a dissatisf dissatisfaction with our with the body politic. It's a dissatisfaction with Washington. It's an interest in the people, the personalities running for president. It's a combination of all of those things. Um, but it's it's it it is a remarkable year, and that's that that is a a, uh, a snapshot of it. 
So let me um, let me interject here a little bit. So, you know, the um, content studies that I've seen, um, Trump has really trumped the other candidates in terms of airtime. Um, and so the question is really around to what degree kind of Trump's attraction and his ability to draw an audience has affected your coverage of Trump. And I'm just the quantity, not, not the well, quality. But. So, so there's something interesting about Donald Trump that I have never seen. It. This is my seventh presidential election. When news organizations call the campaign of a frontrunner of either, the, either side and say, would you like to do an interview on our network today? The answer is almost always no and has been for all seven elections I've been involved in. The frontrunner for the Republican nomination or the Democratic nomination or later the nominee, these interviews are things that are negotiated over weeks or months. It's very difficult to negotiate interviews with the frontrunner candidates. Perhaps the campaigns are risk averse and they don't want their candidate out there or only want them to do certain interviews at certain times with certain news organizations. I don't know. I mean, I've, I, I've certainly been a part of negotiating interviews with leading presidential candidates, and I know how difficult mm -hmm. those interviews are to secure mm -hmm. until Donald Trump became the front runner for the Republican no presidential <coughs> nomination. He says yes. We call. He says yes. He's the front runner. He has, he's the number one in the polls. We call other candidates. Sometimes they say yes. Sometimes they say no. I, I'm a journalist. I like to ask questions. I like for my reporters to ask questions. I like to have an opportunity to ask the leading candidates for President of the United States as many questions as we have an opportunity to. One of the things that is unique about this cycle is that one of the candidates says, says yes when we call. And I find it fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Um, the questions that he gets from all sorts of media, they're tough, they're interesting. He, he, um, he, he answers a lot of questions, more than anybody else. Um, that's unique. Now, last night, if you were watching CNN last night, uh, starting at probably 6.15, you would have seen, the first thing you would have seen was Lindsey Graham introducing former President George W. Bush. If you kept watching, you'd see George W. Bush speaking about his brother. And then if you continue watching, you'd see Jeb Bush speaking. Um, it, was, it was actually, I think, a, a, it was as a political junkie, fascinating to watch George W. Bush return to South Carolina, which was an important state in his, in his, um, uh, his primary race. Um, we're covering other candidates. We're covering their events. We're covering Hillary Clinton. We're covering Bernie Sanders. We're covering Ted Cruz. But when it comes to interviews, Donald Trump says yes. Much more often than any candidate has said yes that I've covered that has been a leading candidate for president um, so far. And that is unique. Uh -huh. So there's a question back here. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I guess it was sort Could of you identify yourself? Oh, um, my name is Nima Theory. I'm a fellow at the Center for International Development here at the Kennedy School. Um, I had sort of a r related question, which was if, if the key media strategy of a presidential candidate is essentially to, in a sense, manipulate the media into covering them 24-7, dropping a bomb, dropping a line every single day to make sure they're the headline all day, every day, for the entire cycle. Is that network then complicit in the potential election of that candidate? How do you deal with that conflict of interest? Because as an outsider, it certainly seems to me that, say, Trump's strategy is to drop a bomb every single day, and that just keeps him front and center. So I go back to how I answered your question. Our job is to cover the candidates. If his positions are controversial, 
it's up to the voters with as much information as I can give them about that position to make up their mind. If they reject that position because it's too controversial for them, then he's then that candidate is not going to be a successful candidate. If they embrace that position with all the information that we can possibly give them about that position, then that's the way democracy works. I, it's not my job to it, it, my job is to ask tough questions of the candidates, to look at their positions, to analyze their positions, to look at them from 360 degrees, to provide counterbalances from other candidates, other parties, experts, all of those things you've seen a part of the coverage this year, not just on CNN, but but everywhere. In Jill Abramson's former two newspapers, there's, there's a tremendous amount of coverage. Part of it is because I think the appetite is greater this year than, than at least than I have ever seen. Um, and if that's, that's our, that's our mission. Our mission is to, is to report on what a candidate says, to fact check what a candidate says, to provide analysis of what a candidate says, to provide critiques of what a candidate says, to provide in some cases support for what a candidate says, because they, they certainly have supporters. Um, and then leave it to you to make up your mind. Are you are you American citizen? No. Oh well, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Marilyn. Um, Sam, I asked Walter Robinson the other day um, his opinion of the investigative reporting around the candidates in 2016, and he looked at me kind of blankly and said, "What investigative reporting?" <laughs> Uh, which I found really interesting. I was thinking about it over the weekend. All the the little pings that that various news outlets have taken the Rubio speedboat ping. The, how did the, you uh, How did you know about the Rubio speedboat story? Oh, I. I, I who who where 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 did it come from? New York Times. And so the New York Times did some investigative reporting Correct. into Rubio it had no and. Well, that's um, so, but the, but not for lack of reporting. So, I guess my question to you would be: What is CNN doing uh, to go beyond the the coverage, the blanket coverage of the news, to get at the stories that actually might impact the field? So, I'll use your example, your Rubio example. I think the news organ. I think that there's been. A significant amount. I don't. I don't want to say enough or not enough, but a significant amount of exploration into the backgrounds of the of the candidates by all sorts of news organizations, serious news organizations: the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, CNN, the Washington Post. Um, week after week, there are you know. In addition to the coverage of what's happened today, you see coverage of of, of their their stories, their personal stories. CNN looked with I, in tremendous detail into Ben Carson's, when he, at the time he was the front runner, you may remember, into his personal story. Um, we, there was a lot of criticism about that, but we did it. We looked, we went, we sent a team of reporters to basically find people that would match up with, with some of the stories that he, he told in his book, just so that we'd understand a little bit more about him, because he had a unique upbringing and a remarkable, he had a remarkable story, and some of it matched, some of it we were able to, 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 to find and to validate, and other parts of it we, we couldn't, and, you know, we, we didn't, we just, we, we just reported what we found. We reported what we had done, we talked to hundreds of people, we sent a team of reporters all over the country, um, the kind of thing that people talk about 
news organizations don't spend money on investigative reporting. Well, we spent a lot of money on that on that project. And it was revealing and interesting. Is that going to be what people make their decision on? Not for me to say. I have no idea. We did it. We reported it on television. We reported it online. It was an example of that kind of reporting. And, um, and it's good that we're doing it. Is that the lion's share of our reporting? Probably not, because we have debates to cover, policy positions to discuss, analyze, respond to. Um, there's a lot to covering a presidential candidate in 360 degrees, but that's certainly a really important piece of it. And I think that, that uh, by and large, the public has access to an awful lot of information about the backgrounds of each of their candidates, whether it's looking into that, you know, some people are tired of Hillary Clinton and her emails, but we don't stop covering it. As we see more emails, we cover them. Some people are, are, are um, think that there's too much of it. Some people think there's not enough of it. Nevertheless, it's still a piece of our coverage, but it's not the entirety of our coverage. It's just a part of it. Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Hello. Joanna Jolly. I'm a fellow here as well, and I'm a journalist for the BBC. And what I'm curious about is when it comes to BBC coverage of the general election in the UK, we're under quite strict legal rules to give each each party a certain amount of airtime, and we're monitored constantly. So if we break that, it, we're immediately told about it. Are you under any similar constraints? No. This is uh, there's that that's that's sort of where the uh, where the Constitution gives us the ability to cover. Uh, everybody as much or as little as we feel is appropriate. There are some rules that apply to broadcast networks um, that are regulated by the FCC um, that are, that you've heard equal time provisions. There were some candidates who, who um, uh, I think had took issue with Saturday Night Live putting Donald Trump on and they asked for equal time and um, that's because the the broadcast stations are, are regulated by the, uh, by the FCC. But that doesn't apply to print, doesn't apply to online media, digital media, it doesn't apply to cable news. Um, uh, that being said, I think that we've given, I think that we've, we've covered the candidates appropriately in that. I don't know under, in England, if um, George Pataki, if you would have had to have covered George Pataki to the same level as Marco Rubio. Have, we would have given him some coverage, but no, not to the same level. Okay. Well, then, then, then it's maybe it's not that different, um, because we gave George Pataki some coverage, but not to the same level as as Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz or, so or Donald Trump. So you think it's possible to be self-regulated here? I think that the the the. I think that the amount of coverage a candidate gets tends to be commensurate with their likelihood of becoming president. Um, I think that the leading candidates the ones who either are well-funded or are particularly successful in the polls are the ones that get the most attention, the most scrutiny, the most coverage. Um, and I think that the candidates who are not, really don't seem to have a serious chance of becoming president um, get less coverage, and I think that's probably okay. I'm not sure that candidates who aren't at 1% in any poll um, have earned the coverage or should be covered the same way as candidates who have a some reasonable likelihood of becoming president of the United States. I'm not sure that would be the right use of our resources. But. My name is Laura Murphy, and I'm an Advanced Leadership Institute fellow here. Um, I'm interested in your panels, because I think your panels are very partisan in terms of the people's backgrounds who are on it. You know, David Axelrod, Donna Brazil, other, you know, some of these people are friends of mine, so it's not like I'm 
David yeah. Gergen, who works here. David Gergen. <laughs> but I, but there, there are other overlays that you could be doing. You could have someone analyze the UFO. You could an have someone analyze older women who are such a huge block of the Democratic vote and younger women. I mean, you could have environmentalists. I don't understand why you have so many panelists and why they're You just are telling me, I thought I just heard you say, well, I need more panelists. No, 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 no. I think you have eight sometimes. You have two panels of four. I don't understand that. First of all, I have to thank you. You know why I'm going to thank you? Because I know. You are such a loyal CNN viewer that you actually know that. That is excellent. That's a good start for our relationship. I don't think that there's really a lot of diversity given how large the panels are. Well, and there are a lot of people who come from both parties. And that seems to be a self-reinforcing perspective that doesn't help uh, independents. It doesn't help um, you know, people with, with viewpoints that aren't necessarily housed in each so party. as I, I agree with you but I don't think you want me to have take that number of eight and increase it to 16 no, how about substitute it? so here's <laughs> so let me give you a little sense of how we do it. if you watch our coverage which you clearly do um, we tend to have a couple of tables we'll have the the they are the, the I'll call them the ideologues or the partisans um, which range from from Donna we have and there we have a, a, a interesting roster ranging from Essie Cup to Kevin Madden who worked for Mitt Romney to Donna Brazil to Van Jones to Ana Navarro to Jeffrey Lord who worked in the Reagan administration. I mean it's a it's a it's a pretty interesting cross-section of people backgrounds you know Van Jones has spent most of his life as an environmental activist okay he's he's a part of that of those conversations all of the time uh, Essie Cup, in addition to being a conservative commentator, is uh, has, has been a gun gun rights activist. Important. You know, they're not talking about those issues. Well, of course by they. Large. Well, it depends on the day. It depends on the day. I mean, if 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 after a debate you have Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton talking about the gun issue, which has become actually a significant issue in the Democratic race, not so much in the Republican race, because they all agree. Well. We talk about it with the panel, um, and there have been debates, Democrat, both both sides, where we were talking about environmental issues. There were some talking about the uh, some of the, the the climate change talks in Europe, and of course, Van was a terrific source to have on that. In addition to the fact that he represents, besides his environmental activism, which is is useful in many conversations, he also worked in the Obama White House, and that's an interesting perspective. But on those tables, we also have Gloria Borger, who's a Chief political analyst. We have John King. We have Dana Bash. Straight journalists that are that are reporting, that are covering the campaign, that are not that don't necessarily come at the conversation with a particular perspective. Um, so, listen. There are people who say we have too many people. There are people who say we have not enough people. There are people who say we have too many people but not the right voices. There are people who say we have the right voices but need a different mix. So, it's a. Um, there are definitely a lot of different ways to view it. I do think that it is important for us to have a group of people that our viewers get to know and that develop a rapport with each other. And so the group of analysts that CNN uses, instead of substituting every single day a different set of people where they don't 
develop a rapport and they don't have a conversation with each other and they don't know each other all that well, I think it is actually useful to have a group of people who like and respect each other, even if they disagree on the politics of it. Ana Navarro and Donna Brazil have fascinating, interesting conversations, even though they come at it from different perspectives, because you can tell that they like each other and they respect each other, even if they disagree. And so that's one of the reasons that we that we have a, a family, if you will, of contributors rather than have a different group every day, depending on what the issue is. Um, so, I, I think that we one of the reasons we continue to do what we do and have the approach we have is we think that it's working. Um, we've uh, our Iowa caucus coverage was the number one highest rated Iowa caucus coverage of in cable news, one of the highest rated Iowa caucus coverages we've ever had. Um, New Hampshire primary coverage was extremely highly rated. It was a little different because, as you may recall, we projected the winner right as at 8 o'clock um, uh, when all the polls closed because it were, it were a pretty significant um, uh, gap between the first place and the second place candidate on both, in both parties, um, which affects the ratings because when, when it's over, when the race is over, sometimes people will um, find other things to watch. And yet the ratings were still very high. So clearly people are watching. As I said, this is an unusual year. But... Um, uh, yeah, I think we're happy. We're happy with the mix. We're happy with the panelists. We get um, generally a very, very positive response. Yeah. Um, Sam, I'm Dan Kennedy. I'm a Joan Shorenstein fellow as well. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the way that the um, debate participants were chosen. Um, I mean, you go way back to last August and September when nobody outside this world was paying attention to the to the race. And yet, polls were used to determine who was in, where people got to stand, oftentimes how much attention was given to them. I, I really don't understand why at that very early stage, why CNN and Fox and the other debate sponsors, especially when you had 18 <coughs> Republicans, why not just go with draw lots and have six a night uh, until you've run through them all? So we, so we did something unique. Um, the first time it had ever that we've ever done this. There were more, more what I would call serious candidates for president on the Republican side than we've ever seen. So, um, you know, 15, 16 candidates, former governors, former, you know, current sitting senators. And so it, that issue was a very difficult issue um, to decide. And so we had to decide how do you get an invitation and who gets invited? Because the reality is they're actually even though there were 16 what we might call serious candidates, there are actually several hundred people who have filed the necessary paperwork right. to be candidates. So you act actually have to figure out a mechanism to decide between the, those candidates and perhaps someone who, you know, it may be a vanity candidate in one state or another, but had actually filed paperwork, formed a federal committee, and, and done the, the basics to be an official presidential candidate. And so... We were confronted with not just CNN, Fox, the RNC, everyone involved in debates were confronted with this unusual situation. And so we decided to tackle it in um, a, an unusual situation led to, I think, an unusual solution, which was that there were 16 candidates, I think it was. And um, I think we all agreed that, there were, that the magic number of the most candidates that you would ever want to have on stage at the same time was between 10 and 11. That, it, that, was, that was really beyond that was going to be, was just too difficult to, to manage. Um, so we decided to have what we called an undercard debate. 
and we didn't call it that. It was sort of named for us afterwards, but we, we held two debates, same stage, same moderator, uh, same audience, same environment, same types of questions, I think the same quality of questions, same approach, everything was the same, except that the candidates on stage were, were um, broken into two parts. And so the first debate that CNN did this with was our debate at the Reagan Library in September. Um, and then we had to decide how are we going to how are we going to decide between the candidates. Already there was, even by September, um, there was a very clear division in the polls, particularly in the early states, Iowa, New Hampshire, even South Carolina. People who were, were paying attention um, to the race closely between sort of the first, the top group and the second group uh, of, of candidates. And so we decided that we should have a debate where the leading candidates were on stage together, so that that the, the people with the greatest likelihood of getting the nomination based on what they had done to that point in the race um, were on stage together. But because we couldn't fit everybody, we had a second debate. And guess what? There were people from the second tier debates that made it into the main stage. Chris Christie was one. He had fallen off of the main stage in one debate, but he made it back onto the main stage in another debate because of his he, – because he, he, he worked hard. He campaigned. He worked he did, did well in the polls. It was, it was a very difficult situation. And that's and it was an unusual situation, and that's how we decided to handle it. And it it, it sort of went that way for the first uh, number of Republican debates until people began to drop out. And so I think the last two debates that you've seen um, this past Saturday and the previous Saturday uh, there were the first debates of this cycle on the Republican side where there was uh, there was no undercard. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. Um, the argue the discussions inside were that. If you have two or three of the leading candidates for president by drawing straws or some other mechanism, are you actually depriving the voters of an opportunity to see the leading candidates side by side and have a conversation because that's where the story was and that's where the, conver the political conversation was? And if you drew straws and you ended up separating them by some arbitrary means and you had the person who was barely pulling at 1% on the stage instead of the top two or three contenders, that were we, were we serving the public very well under that circumstance? And we decided ultimately um, to do what we did, which was, which was um, decided by polling. But it's, it was unusual. It was, w without a doubt, uh, as I said, seven presidential elections. No one's faced that particular issue before. You, you were telling us some of the ratings earlier. Do you have the ratings in front of you for some of these kids' table debates? Yeah, so um, <laughs> I actually do. Uh, if you give me a moment. The undercard debates this year actually rated higher than the non-undercard debates in previous cycles. Mm -hmm. And that's how and and that's how significant I think the interest is in this campaign. So just um, just glancing at glancing at them, uh, the undercard debates this cycle had four or five million viewers. And in previous cycles, the early debates had two and three million or four million viewers, which it just is another indication that this was really a remarkable, a remarkable year. People watched them. They were significant. And as I said, there were some people such as Carly Fiorina and Chris Christie who actually moved between, between the stages at different, at different times. Okay, so a question yeah. over I give here. Them credit. I couldn't give six hours a night. <laughs> <laughs> it, there's something about this election. It really is amazing. Yeah, please. Hi, I'm um, I uh, cover the Kennedy School for the Harvard's uh, official news outlet, the Harvard Gazette. Um, and not to belabor the coverage question, as we've, we've talked about it a bunch, but one of the things I personally find remarkable is the extent to which um, 
particularly Donald Trump or especially him, has been given sort of unedited, unremarked upon blocks of time. I, I've, I've literally watched one-hour rallies of him talking without anyone breaking into comment, without someone pulling out you know, snippets to say, he said this, he said this, pulling out the noteworthy or newsworthy things, just letting him go on and on. I've watched Don Lemon have a 35-minute phone conversation with Trump on his show, Erin Burnett last week her lead into her 7 p.m. show, which is a primetime show. Hi, I'm Aaron Burnett. We are waiting for Donald Trump. He is about to take the stage. That was literally how she, uh, she started her show. Did you see how she started her show last night? Uh, no, I didn't. She didn't get to start her show because oh, well, we were I'm already in the Bush rally. Sorry, yeah. And we continued, <laughs> and we didn't interrupt it. And I think that pres I think but that that's most... That's, I, one of the things I saw was I looked at it and said, wow, I don't, you know, it, it's newsworthy that, that W is talking. On the other hand, I thought, geez, I, I don't think I've ever seen a, a Bush rally where it's live and, and they're not just showing it what, what he said earlier in the day. Um, I'm just curious, what is the editorial rationale for showing uh, so you know, an unedited I, block of time? No, I actually am a firm believer that candidates rallies and we run a lot of them I, and that different viewers at different times may see the same some candidates tend to have a rhythm Donald Trump tends to speak at about the same time when he does his rallies um, other candidates have midday rallies because perhaps they're trying to get into the news cycle um, but I think you will see you have seen that we take a tremendous number of these candidate rallies last weekend we were taking rallies and then it was interrupted by the news of, 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 uh, of Justice Scalia's death but um, I think that taking candidate rallies um, unedited is, I think, a really is actually a valuable service. The people of New Hampshire, Iowa, South Carolina, soon to be some of the other states, Nevada, they see the candidates. If they want to go to a rally, they go to a rally. If you live in New Hampshire, you can go to five candidate events in the same day because it's, it's easy to get to. If you don't live in New Hampshire, you don't get a chance to see that. And so one of the things that we do is we actually put we give the candidates an opportunity to put their to, to to have their stump speech if you will on television um and that's what we did last night with jeb bush uh it was an interesting moment um during aaron burnett's show as you as you said and we did not interrupt it with our own commentary in the middle of the speech we let jeb bush have give his his give his speech and last weekend we did that with Hillary Clinton in a, in a couple of events that I that I happen to be watching and we did it with Bernie Sanders um, and we do it with we with with all of the candidates and it's important now at different times you we might not do it with the candidates that are polling in one percent or two percent it's a little you know that there's a there, you have to make a judgment call but I think that taking those rallies live unedited without commentary is useful we can do the commentary afterwards. I don't want. I don't think we should interrupt them in the middle of it, to to annotate what they say. Um, but we'll, is every time they speak newsworthy? I mean, how do you determine in advance whether a particular rally is going to be newsworthy? Since you theoretically don't know what they're going no, to say. No, listen. You're you're absolutely right. You have no idea, and it and it you have to balance every event with what else is going on in the news of the day, in the political world, um, in as I said the perfect example was this weekend um, we our entire news coverage shifted on Saturday to the death of Justice Scalia away from the political rallies that, that we frequently take on Saturdays um, because a lot of candidates are active as you can imagine on the weekends so there's a new news judgment uh, question to mix in it's a there's no there's no um, there's no perfect answer it depends on what's happening in the day it depends on what else is happening in the world CNN is covering 
a lot of stories throughout the day. Um, politics is a big story that we're covering right now, but it's not the only story that we're covering right now. And then, of course, Justice Scalia was <laughs> politics and a lot of things all wrapped up into one. It was a fascinating afternoon um, because it, of the timing. His death came right before a presidential debate at a really a, a, a critical time in this presidential election. It was, it was, it was unbelievable, actually. But, you know, please. Um, hello. Hello. I would like to know, given the global reach of CNN, which is um, unique or unusual in this day and age, why don't you bring us more analysis from abroad? Why don't you go to Mexico and ask them how they feel about the war? So it's a um, it's a very good point, as you all may know. CNN has multiple services. They're actually two dozen versions of CNN, 24-hour news channels, different services in different countries, um, including CNN International, um, which, so what you see on CNN US is frequently very different than what you see in Europe or Asia, and then there are other services, CNN Turk, which is a completely different service altogether. Um, and you are seeing, we have a political program on CNN International that's, that doesn't even air in the United States, um, that, uh, what's that? It's, well, there is, we program for our domestic viewers differently than we pro I mean I I I think you I think the point is well taken I'm not sure that our domestic audience is as interested in what Mexicans or or Brazilians or Germans think of our presidential race but it's a it, it's a it's a, it's a useful point I don't disagree with you but I'm not sure that at the core of our coverage of a, pre of a U.S. presidential election? So if you watch, if you watch uh, one of our programs, which is, uh, airs on CNN and CNN International, it's called Fareed Zakaria GPS. It's on every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, and it also replays every Sunday at 1 o'clock. That is a piece of that show that's an important piece of that show. It's at the periphery of our election coverage, but we do it. Um, because it's important, it's important to Fareed, and Fareed, as a, one of his missions of his show, if you think about GPS, is the world looking in and the U.S. looking out. Um, so it's a good point. So you said we have time to for quote a wise woman. Periphery, I think. Yeah, you said. We, have, we have time for one more question. Yes, sir. Yeah. So um, it was interesting. I, I was, was actually thinking about this last night. Um, uh, one of the things that we do, particularly during debates, is a really is a useful opportunity for us to do it. Is we actually have an entire team of people, and this was uh, on, on this past Saturday night. We had several conference rooms full, about this size, full of people that were doing exactly uh, exactly that, fact checking the um, the debate, the comments, because boy, that was a complicated debate. And so at the end of the debate, we published one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 
9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 separate stories um, uh, from that debate. We publish them individually. You can go and look at the, we call them reality checks, um, on Saturday night after the TBS debate. Um, then we did segments on television, instant <laughs> segments that we ran right after the debate. We did a two-hour post-game program after that debate on Saturday night, and then we did more of those segments on, on Sunday following the debate. And we, and, and we fact-checked all sorts of statements, and as I just glanced through, I would say probably a third of them were false, and a third of them were true, and the rest are more complicated, either mostly true, or one of them, it's, the, the verdict was true. It says true, and it's complicated. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's, you know, they're very, they can be very subjective sometimes and sometimes they're less subjective, but we think of, we, we take that, that mission, it's an important mission. Um, we publish them, we not only publish them, but we surface them prominently on our political site, on our, uh, on the main homepage of CNN.com. We incorporate them into our programs. Um, I can't tell you whether that's a feature of our political coverage that the viewers love or don't love. They, they tend to read them, but not in massive numbers. We certainly put them in prominent locations, um, and we do the work. We do. We have this team of researchers and experts, um, subject matter experts that are constantly looking. We have our foreign policy experts that are looking at the foreign policy questions. We have uh, uh, financial and economic experts that are looking at the economic questions, um, and political experts and people that are frank frankly checking previous statements or positions by the candidate if if, if that's what's uh, in question. Um, I think it's important that fa we do fact checks. PolitiFact has, is, has created, a tr I think, a really valuable resource for the coverage of American politics. Uh, it's, it's owned and run by Pointer, which is sort of a good journalism uh, foundation. Um, the Washington Post does a has a terrific fact checker and fact checking <coughs> segment, and, and CNN takes this seriously. Is it, does it drive our coverage? Does it drive people's interest in the campaign? I'm not quite sure. I think it's one of the pieces of the puzzle, but good. Yeah. Sam Feist, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.